Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me on this Tuesday as we start a brand new week, really wrapping up the month of July. How crazy is this? Time just flies, man. You got to enjoy your life. I mean, we're in the fight, but you got to enjoy your life because time moves really fast. Here we are at the end of July. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore, and on Twitter and True Social at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I am at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Again, Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Okay, coming up later in the week, we're going to talk about the concept of happiness with a very, very special guest. And I know, you know, we've got a lot of very serious things coming at us. President Trump being indicted again. Uh, the election, there are so many things coming at us, and we cover it every day on this show. But I thought, because it is the end of July, we're heading into August, I thought we needed a palate cleanser, okay? <laughs> we need we need some relief, because things are very dark and very heavy, and we're going to talk about some of those things today. So later in the week, we're going to do a little palate cleanser because we're heading into August and we're going to talk about the concept of happiness, what it is, how to achieve it, especially in these very dark times. And we're going to be joined by someone I've been dying to talk to for a very long time, a very special guest. So excited to have him here. He's going to join us on Thursday. So you're not going to want to miss want to miss this for a second. You're going to want to listen to the entire show and make sure you're telling all of your friends, your family, your colleagues about the Monica Crowley podcast. Well, today I want to devote the show to a very important issue, perhaps the most important issue we face because it gets to our other our, our most fundamental freedoms. 
and the accelerated moves to strip us of those freedoms. I'm speaking, of course, of the advance of the globalist tyrants, the globalist entities like the World Economic Forum and World Health Organization and others, and the world governments and leaders that support them in their mission to erase the world's borders, establish a one-world government with them at the top, of course, in total control, enforced by a complete police and surveillance state. This is their goal. Think it's far-fetched? Well, many of them, from the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab and Yuval Hariri to Bill Gates to so many others, are on the record openly expressing their admiration for the Chinese communist model and with their wish for that tyrannical model to be adopted worldwide. This is what they want, total control and total power, with you having none over your own lives, from your ability to move, to where and how you live, to what you eat. Their dystopian vision makes Orwell's 1984 look like a day at the beach. One of the key ways that they hope to achieve all of this is by moving everything to a digital universe. It's a way for them to wipe out your privacy, concentrate power in their hands, and be able to absolutely control you. Shut down your freedom in the blink of an eye with the flip of a switch. At the center of this malign plan is a digital identity. This is exceedingly dangerous and it is a very far advanced stage of planning, including here in the U.S. via my old stomping grounds, the U.S. Treasury Department. COVID, the lockdowns, all of it was a test run to see how easily we could all be manipulated into complying with government mandates. And the vast majority of us failed that test. Too many of us gave up too many freedoms too fast because fear was weaponized against us. So we failed the test run, and now these globalists, both here and abroad, think that they can do whatever they want when they're ready. And that means the introduction of a digital ID with all of the many losses of freedom that come with it. To help take us through all of this is our friend James Melville, who I am pleased to say is back to make his second appearance here on the Monica Crowley podcast. James is a communications consultant, as well as a freelance writer, television commentator, and a keen observer and critic of the dangerous globalist movement about which he is very outspoken. Follow him on Twitter at James Melville. James, welcome back. So good to have you here. Hey, good to speak to you again, Monica. Well, we've got a lot to get to with you because this is, as I just described, a huge issue uh, with a lot of moving parts. Let's start with the concept of a digital identity. What is it? And what do the globalists hope to achieve with it? With it, give us an overview before we get into some of the specifics. I think ultimately it's about control. 
It's a form of tech totalitarianism. I mean, for instance, there's different points, access points with all of this. Take, for instance, COVID. There is an argument that if COVID was around in the 1990s, it wouldn't have happened. The reason it could happen is because of aspects such as lockdowns, vaccine passports, um, identification programs, track and trace and so on. That was all connected through one thing, digital. It meant that people could also work from home in terms of online deliveries and so on. So while digital does advance a lot of things, it speeds up the world, it can connect people as well, sharing of ideas. There is a flip side of that, that little thing that we carry around in our hands the whole time and use probably far too much, our smartphone, is the gateway to that entrapment. And that is what's connect. That's how they could roll out, for instance, a whole set of QR code related things around COVID. But it's not just about COVID. There's other aspects as well. Like, for instance, anything wrapped around an in inverted commas smart, whether it's smart cities, you know, smartphones, smart cars. Um, you know, there's all kinds of aspects of surveillance and control attached to that as well, and data capture that's connected to it. And then there's the other aspects as well. It's not just aspects of net zero. There's also finance. Central bank digital currencies are being piloted or in consultation stage in over 100 countries around the world. And I would suggest that the majority of people have absolutely no idea what that is. And so a lot, a lot of this is using the playbook of authoritarianism. When an authoritarian says it's for your own good, it's for your safety, it's for your convenience, then alarm bells should go off. And actually, digital ID is wrapped around all of that as well. I and mean, if you take, for instance, digital currencies, they'll suggest it's for our convenience to make it easy for financial transactions, but with conveniently ignoring that that potentially opens a gateway to social credit systems, whereby they control possibly financial transactions on our own behavior whether we're, you know, our energy monitoring, you know, how many miles are we driving in our car? Now, COVID was a catalyst for all of this stuff because I think they could suddenly realise that they can control everything in terms of registrations, data, mandates, even something as horribly grim and authoritarian as illiberal as vaccine passports, fundamentally through aspects of digital ID. And then you get individuals, unelected individuals like Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, Tony Blair, institutions like the WHO, the World Health Organization, saying that there needs to be almost like a sort of one health, one world digital ID platform that interconnects everyone again for safety and convenience. And meanwhile, what we need to do is take a step back from that and realize that these individuals are using digital ID as the ultimate expression of control. Now, I am all for humanitarian aspects in a number of different ways, but part of being a humanitarian is about civil rights, liberties, and freedoms. And digital ID, in whatever shape or form, with all the examples that I've mentioned, is the diametric opposite of freedom. Digital ID, as you just have laid out, and I just gave an overview before um, I introduced you, James, it really is institutionalized control and institutionalized oppression. And when we look at 
you know, movies in pop culture that are set in the future, everybody has like a scan on their arm or on their forehead and the state scans you. It's institutionalized identity, right? And then we, of course, we think of the ultimate uh, nefarious and malign application of this, which was during the Holocaust, where the Jews were literally stamped with a tattoo of a number where Nazi Germany could keep track of who they were and where they were. And then when they were killed, that that was um, recorded as well. But rather than having a name and an individual identity and persona for the state, you are institutional. You are simply a number. You are a QR code. You are a barcode. And all of the stuff that we have sort of dismissed in pop culture, like seeing it in the movies or, well, the Holocaust was X number of decades ago and it hasn't happened again. So, well, we are headed down that road and anybody who thinks that is far-fetched is really uh, blind to what is going on because this is now, as I said, very far down the track. The the Treasury Department under Joe Biden here in the U.S. has been studying uh, central bank digital currency, which we're going to get to in a second, but part and parcel of that, it, it is all part of a digital identity, which is this kind of institutionalized control and the reduction of the individual to just a number so that the state can dehumanize you and control you. Am I right? Yeah, it is. It's ultimate control. Um, There's two aspects to this. First of all, there's government control, but there's also opportunity for what I call the great virtue contract, a gigantic asset grab. You know, we're witnessing the greatest transference of wealth in the history of the planet over the last three years. But but it's not just wealth. It's about accumulation of assets. And one of those assets is data. And so the one thing that interconnects everything that's going around in this so-called clown world over the last three years through the response to COVID uh, with restrictions, mandates, vaccine passports, net zero response, finance, um, you know, they're even considering things like universal basic income, you know, the whole aspect of smart cities, energy consumption, all of these things. There's one thing that interconnects all of them, and that's digital ID. For You know, this is a classic thing, problem. Government sees a problem. They create a reaction driven by the media. Then the government, because they say it's for our own good, our own safety and our convenience, back to that again, they create a solution in inverted commas. And that solution creates a whole heap of other problems, which then the government will provide more solutions and there's more problems and so on. It becomes like a Mobius loop. But the one outcome they're trying to get to interconnects all of these things. And you don't have to go far to look for this. This is certainly not a conspiracy theory. I'm actually sick and tired of people saying, oh, you conspiracy theorists, when actually it's not. It's all actually out there. Central bank digital currencies. It's happening. It's coming down the tracks. It's pilot schemes in numerous countries, the same as the UK, not just America. Our prime minister in the UK, Rishi Sunak, he's openly advocating for central bank digital currencies. His individuals within government are putting together consultation programs on what digital ID as universal digital ID would look like. So each individual problem that we have and the solutions that governments put in place to try and, in inverted commas again, solve the problem, the thing that connects them all is digital ID. And therefore, we have the right to ask why. Because there is nothing that I've seen 
in their solutions of digital ID that is required in our society. In fact, it's deeply illiberal. And when you look at countries like America and Britain, two of the most historically liberal countries out there, lands of the free, that were getting perilously close to most aspects in society, function and form aspects like energy, um, when you're buying food, um, whether it's dealing with um, health issues, whether it's dealing with finance, whether it's dealing with travel, whereby somehow we're either getting surveilled or we're getting told what we can do through a QR code and digital ID. That should have no place in lands of the free, like Britain or America, or indeed anywhere else. And the last thing I'll say on this is that it's not far, too far-fetched to suggest that this might happen. China have already got there. You know, they've got that model in place of huge amounts of surveillance on every aspect of life, which has led to aspects of central bank digital currencies out there and indeed social credit systems. And we have to be very, very careful that we do not slip down that path. Uh, but the worry I've got with this is the vast majority of people are completely unaware that a lot of this is happening and may sleepwalk towards this because they'll be told that it's for their safety and for their convenience. Yes, and that's what the whole framing of the COVID pandemic was all about. You know, the yeah. the actual virus, they, they called it a no novel coronavirus. Oh my goodness, we've never seen anything like this before. We don't know how this virus is going to behave in human beings. They leveraged fear. Fear is government's most effective weapon. Um, but what we now know is that, you know, they all knew at the time that this virus wasn't particularly lethal. Well, they knew it wasn't particularly virulent. And yes, if you had massive comorbidities like heart disease, diabetes, um, and so on, if you had cancer, you were more vulnerable to this. But the vast majority of people were going to contract it and survive just fine. They leveraged the fear to test us to see how easily we would give up our freedoms yeah. and comply in the name of safety. You don't want to kill your grandmother. Again, the left is very, very effective at leveraging emotion and emotional argument. So you don't want to kill grandma, do you? Okay, now you can't go visit your loved one on her deathbed because you don't want to be uh, responsible for accelerating her death, right? So they leverage false but very effective emotional arguments to get people to comply. And, that, and once they got a, a handle on the globe and how the globe would comply, now they're ready to take it to the next level. Um, okay, so let's let's get into the, some, some of the specifics that you just identified there, James. So we've got a digital identity. It's going to extend to a number of different things, including people, entities, your devices, and your things in your life. And I want to walk through them because I agree with you that most people have no idea what this is or that we are sort of on the precipice of mass adoption of these things. Um, and they're all freedom crushing. So let's talk, uh, let's drill down into a lot of this and, uh, and really educate people about what's coming. Let's begin with your money. You will need a digital ID for all financial transactions and services to open bank accounts, to carry out online financial transactions, to buy and to sell. Your digital ID will be linked to all of this. This gets us to what you just identified, central bank digital currency. 
which is one of the most dangerous things that I've ever heard. Can you walk us through central bank digital currencies, James? What do they look like? Yeah, I mean, there's different models of it. I think people, some people get confused. They think it's somehow connected to crypto, sort of Bitcoin or whatever, and it's very, very different. Um, I think this has come around because I think another aspect I'd want to lob in there into the mix about what we, where we are is um, because the fiat monetary system is a busted flush. You know, this has been creeping up on us for decades. You know, governments are basically leveraging up debt as are financial institutions. Um, so much so that, you know, many countries around the world, are their national debt is off the scale. In the UK, the national debt has more than doubled in the last decade. Um, and countries are fundamentally surviving on stockpiling quantitative easing. If you look at the amount of QE that's been stocked up over the last three years, even in the UK, it's north of $400 billion, which is extraordinary. A lot of that was used to pay for the COVID response. And so I think there's a lot of institutions and governments who are concerned about, you know, what is effectively at the moment a giant Ponzi scheme. It's not sustainable. So this is where central bank digital currencies come in, where governments can, again, going back to that word, potentially control something. But in this case, financial systems. And this is a huge concern because at the moment we have the free market, we've got consumer choice with a number of financial institutions and banks, but we also have within that privacy. So individuals and freedom. So individuals can set up their bank account, their savings or their investments portfolio, um, whatever it might be. And they can pick and choose. The one thing they're guaranteed is the freedom of choice with a huge big slice of privacy attached to that. Central bank digital currencies are, are different because effectively what it's doing is a kind of central ownership of individuals or business money and transactions. And um, this becomes about central centralized control. And within that, I get, they will dress it up, as I've said a couple of times, that it's just for its convenience. It's the way the world should be going and, and the sort of global stratosphere of finance, you know, it, it, one size does fit all or something like this. You know, the IMF are suggesting it. Individual countries are working on it. We don't exactly know what the model will look like, but, you know, there's a lot of pilot schemes in place. And it's all about consolidating, effectively, finance and financial transactions rather than giving the individual the choice and the privacy. The problem with this, the government will try and sell it in for everyone's interest like they always do, wrap around the cloak of virtue again like they always do and say, basically, you need this in your life. It's for your own security and your own convenience. But... The risk, the caveat that comes with that is what happens beyond that? Is it a Trojan horse towards something much more sinister? And that could be that they effectively turn the lights off in terms of your financial transactions if you don't comply to their certain terms and conditions. Those terms and conditions could be about your energy consumption. They could be about what you're spending your money on. Are you buying too much meat? Are you drinking too much alcohol? Are you buying cigarettes? Are you driving your car too much? We can check all those things because we can see your statements. We know what you're spending your money on. Yeah, so it's all. So we've got an issue with um, what are the rules of the game here in terms of um, financial transactions under central bank digital currency. Um, the governments might be piloting it, but we, they're not telling us what the future looks like. Is that future connected to a social credit system? 
Or is it in some way in our best interest? What about our privacy? What about our security? And I, I, I have a huge problem with this because, once again, it comes back to technological c- control. We've seen it in China. What is to stop governments doing the same thing here? And the reason people are suspicious about this, including myself, is because we've actually had a form of social credit systems already. That was in the, under the auspice of vaccine passports. Vaccine passports, by the very nature, was a digitalized um, form of effectively a central bank digital currency in a way. It was basically saying to people, if you don't get the vaccine, then you'll lose a lot of your social privileges. You might lose your job. You know, there was, for instance, in the UK, air workers had to walk away from their profession because they didn't have the required vaccine passport if they hadn't had the vaccine. That is, in essence, a social credit system. And there was QR codes attached to that. So that the governments have actually gone there already. So what is to stop them doing the same thing with financial transactions? That's fundamentally my big concern with central bank digital currencies. Yes, and it is a very dark dystopian vision that you've laid out, and it happens to be the truth, because the practical effect of central central bank digital currencies is the end of your economic freedom. Because the state then, because it will all be centralized, and I don't know what's happening in the UK, but here in the US, there is really a move afoot to pressure out um, your local neighborhood banks, your your regional banks, your community banks. And these are the smaller banks, James, that actually support small businesses across America because they are your neighborhood bank. They are your regional bank. And so they have a closer touch with the people on the ground running your local deli or your local dry cleaner, right? There is a pressure in this country to kind of phase them out, consolidate them with the really big banks, but ultimately there will be a move to end the big banks. And so everybody's bank will be the Federal Reserve, right? Or the central bank in the UK, like your bank will be the Fed and your money, and I'm putting your money in air quotes, your money will be software. It'll be a number in software located at the Fed in a centralized place. And the state will be able to, as you say, monitor literally everything you buy down to a stick of gum. Is that correct? Yeah, there are the potential for it, definitely. And, then, you know, we've seen it, obviously, in China. They've gone down that way. And the reason I think people are concerned that it might happen in Western society is we've already, we've already sung this song before with vaccine passports. They've done it over people's health. What's to stop them doing it over finance? So we have that model in place. The vaccine passport example is a perfect example to say, look, if they were capable of doing that, they're capable of doing anything. And so we need to take heed of that. And so therefore, we have to look at alternatives. We have to look at things like Bitcoin, but that's kind of from an investment point of view. But in terms of financial transactions on the ground, your average punter spending in their local shop or their pub or their restaurant or their, you know, whatever retail outlet it might be. That's why we also need old fashioned, old school cash to remain in society. In the UK, it'll be the same in the States. In the UK, there's millions of elderly people who are not online. They don't have digitalized bank accounts. They don't have online banking. They're reliant on old school cash. You know, what about, for instance, you know, charities and the homeless? They need the contributions of old school cash as well. And so if you take 
all aspects out, such as old cash, and you leave it with digital currency, well, what are the millions of people supposed to do who are not online? There's no way they're going to be able to get the elderly online. And it's and so we have to make we have to use every argument we can from an ethical point of view. We touched on how the left are very good at framing the virtue to try and win the argument. Well, we need to do the same ourselves to say this is ill in terms of digitalization of finance under the auspice of central bank digital currencies. We just say that it's a liberal, it's a huge risk. We do this at our peril. It will um, ostracize huge amounts of people because they're simply not online. And fundamentally, it is a Trojan horse, potentially, to losing even more freedoms. We go down this, down this route, then we have no idea where it ends up. It potentially, it potentially ends up with social credit systems like what they've got in China. And there's a part of me that's absolutely flabbergasted these words are even coming out of my mouth. If mm. someone had said this to me five years ago, I'd have laughed at them. But based on how they responded through COVID with some of the most, to put it politely, bonkers mandates, rules and restrictions ever seen in our countries, but it was fundamentally all about control. If they're capable of doing those things, they're certainly capable of effectively controlling the sort of terms and conditions about how individuals buy and spend. It is absolutely extraordinary. We need more people to become aware of this. Central bank digital currencies, for me, and you touched on this, Monica, earlier, is one of the most important lines in the sand that we can possibly discuss. We cannot let this happen because the risks attached to it on the other side of it, such as social credit systems, are too great. You know, the the things, James, that we thought were inconceivable even five, ten years ago, we could not even conceive this beyond a science fiction movie, right? Actually did come to pass in the last three years under COVID. And here in the U.S., we had the same mandates. People lost their jobs. They lost their livelihoods. Their ability to feed their families was taken away from them because they didn't want to take an experimental gene therapy where nobody could identify what actual ingredients were in that gene therapy. I mean, it was absolute tyrannical madness and yet we 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 uh, the vast majority of people went along with it now you and i stood up to it and there were you know a lot of other people who did but the vast majority of people just went downstream uh, with the flow and that's what the the powers that be across the west and the world saw that and they were heartened by it so central bank digital currencies will actually give the state the ability to shut you off and shut you down if you've tweeted the wrong thing, if you won't get another experimental medication in your arm, no more access to what you think is your money. But it won't really be your money because you now belong to the state. That's it. You're effectively renting out your own money to the state, which is preposterous. Taking a step back from this, we pay our taxes to the government, and then if we have central bank digital currencies, we we pay them for them to tell us what to do and control us through things like central bank digital currencies. And then they take control over what money we've got left. It's outrageous that they're doing this. Where's the social contract in that? My understanding of the social contract is that we pay the government tax because they are supposed to serve us, right. not control us. You know, we own them. 
They do not own us. They are supposed to represent us. And if we don't like them, we get rid of them in an election. And we pay our taxes so we do. they do what they're supposed to do, provide good public services, run the country effectively, give the opportunity of choice and freedom and allow the country to become a better place while they're in government. Certainly not to control our finances. It's absolutely absurd. The fact that we're even having this discussion is extraordinary. The fact that they implemented all of these now, these crazy mandates over the COVID period, which were just proved to be bogus and all about control. They weren't following the science. You know, you know, mandates and, you know, digital ID and the rest of it, that's not science, that's policy. It's constructed by design. It's, it's an agenda. It's yes. not follow the science, it's fo- follow the politics. And the politics that you follow ends up with one thing. Control. And digital ID is all about control. The central bank digital currencies is control on steroids. Because once they start controlling our finance, what's left? Once they've got hold of that and they have that potential power to decide who has that account, whether they can spend from that account, if they've been a naughty person and might have driven too much and bought too much red meat or whatever, then... That'll be cut off. And you're seeing it already. Again, certain financial institutions are shutting off high-profile figures because they have the wrong political views. Nigel Farage, so, correct? Well, yes. I mean, you know, whether you agree with Nigel Farage or not is irrelevant, but when you get to the point that financial institutions um, are sort of suppressing his finances because they don't agree with his views, this is not a liberal and free society. This is like something out of what happened in Eastern Europe in the 70s and early 80s. It's absolutely ridiculous. You know, one of the great aspects of Western democracy is the very word democracy and also the freedoms that are attached to that. And we have a huge problem with what we've got with the technology and therefore what governments potentially are doing with that technology. It's becoming warped, and it's about control. It's not just about governments. It's about, you know, technocrats who are, you know, power-hungry like the WHO, who may well be deciding a form of digital ID in terms of one-world healthcare and a response to a pandemic, which they should know they should not be close to because they're not elected. And there's also corporations who are enjoying this huge virtue con asset grab combined with a lot of data capture. Um, And so it's our job as commentators, wherever we are, to try and, I hate the phrase wake people up because it sounds patronising, but it's to to inform people and make them aware that perhaps our governments aren't working in our best interests. Perhaps they are working for more control. But people need to remember the golden rule of democracy, as I said before. Our governments, they don't own us. They work for us. And anything that is a, a threat to our basic core liberties and freedoms of choice and expression must always be fought against. And that is where we're at right now. All right, James, I'm going to ask you to please stand by. We've got much more coming up with James Melville straight ahead. Sit tight. 
As central banks in countries like China, India, and Australia begin transitioning to a digital currency, the Federal Reserve has been contemplating the same for the U.S. With a digital currency, the government could track every single purchase you make. Officials could even prohibit you from purchasing certain products or even easily freeze or seize part or all of your money. These are some of the reasons concerned Americans are reaching out to Birch Gold Group. They want to have a physical asset that's independent from the U.S. dollar. Gold held tax-sheltered in a retirement account. Learn if gold is right for you too. Text Monica to 989-898 and they will send you a free info kit on gold. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, Birch Gold has been helping my listeners from the very beginning. Text Monica to 989-898 and claim your free info kit on gold because if a central bank digital currency becomes reality, it'll be very nice to have some gold to depend on. Okay, we are back with James Melville. One of the uh, reasons why you and I became friends, James, and I treasure our, our friendship so much and why I want to continue to bring you and uh, your points of view uh, to this audience is because, and, and I know I introduced you this way the last time you were on, but I didn't today, is that you were a classical liberal, small L. I mean, you, you have, um, you know, traditionally been on the uh, British left, you know, and, and for someone like you to see what is happening to the, the, the very threats to our freedom, it hits different than when I say it. I've been a lifelong conservative. Um, it, you know, it, it hits different because your eyes are open and you can see, you know, you believe in classical liberal, small L, uh, democracy, representative government, um, and the free exchange of ideas. And all of those things now are under direct threat by these globalists and by this movement, which makes your point of view and your arguments here so much more powerful. Um, you know, talking about control and how far down the track we are and how they are doing this experimentation, James, I will tell you, in one of our states, in Colorado, the um, the the power uh, company in that state gave great financial incentives to homeowners to switch their homes over to what they call smart thermostats, right? So I remember years ago hearing about how Bill Gates turned his massive estate into a, quote, smart home so that he could adjust the temperature room to room by his smartphone. And everybody thought that was the coolest thing, right? This is the Jetsons. This is the future. Having a smart home where you could be on a vacation in Australia, take out your smartphone and control the temperature of your pool back in New Jersey or outside London or whatever it might be, right? And everybody thought, oh, this is the future. This is the way to go. Well, this company in Colorado, I believe it was last year or two years ago, gave cash incentives to homeowners to switch their homes over to this smart energy use. But what they didn't say was that that company, which is linked to the Colorado state government, now controls individual thermostats 
in their homes. So when it's very cold in the winter in Colorado, these residents that took the money to switch over now cannot warm their homes above a certain temperature. And in the summer when it gets hot, they can't cool their homes below a certain temperature. This is the kind of thing that we are talking about. And so people who think that it's just a, you know, you and I are conspiracy theorists, this is actually happening in pilot programs across the West. And I know in the UK, and I want you to speak to this now, James, you guys have 15-minute cities. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah. I mean, it's under, you know, the, the remit of net zero. You know, there's low-traffic neighbourhoods, smart cities are sort of interconnected, but 15-minute cities in England, 20-minute cities in Scotland. I don't really know what, what works out the five-minute difference between England and Scotland, but there you go. The concept is fundamentally the same. And what it's about is it's effectively up to do with um, the response to climate and, and net zero and to lower emissions Um, But it's crass logic again, like a lot of these solutions that connect net zero, digital ID, COVID response, is that the solutions create more problems, they create collateral damages. So we're already getting, for instance, in some of the the towns and cities that have implemented this, like Oxford, whereby business owners are already complaining that their turnovers are down because there's obviously less traffic in that area, there's less ability for deliveries to come and go, there's less cars coming into those zones, and there's also security issues. So, for instance, people are struggling to get home at night after going to a club or a pub. It's bonkers. It's ridiculous, but it's around trying to do the right thing, as they always frame it, around trying to lower emissions, which ultimately is futile, considering if you've got a problem with emissions, then the biggest contributor to that by a country mile is not the UK, it's China. Yes, and India too. Yeah, it's they're going through their industrial revolutions. And it's also, you know, the thing that's happening with farmers as well. It's happening in Canada, it's happening in the Netherlands, there's parts of it happening in the UK. We're trying to lower the sort of nitrogen use, which is having a massively detrimental effect to yields. Uh, farmers are under threat in the Netherlands of um of having their land taken away by the government. And they're being monitored again digitally um, to, to, for them to comply otherwise or else they lose their land. And so we've got this situation whereby governments are framing these issues, whatever it might be, whether it's net zero or COVID response or, you know, the cost of living crisis, the solutions linked to digital ID, the government therefore have ultimate control because they can monitor everyone's behaviour through the, the data appliances on that individual's phone or thermostats or, you know, whatever it might be. And then they can potentially call the shots about whether the individual should continue with something. It's a dangerous path. And we need to learn the lessons that we had in COVID, whereby loads of things were restricted. The government were putting in huge restrictions, QR codes and so many things, vaccine passports. What's to stop them doing this again? And going back to answer your question, to turn it around again, 15-minute cities is a perfect example of that. It's all about control. It's about restricting individuals' freedom of movement in local neighbourhoods. They're segmenting them off into 15-minute zones. So people basically can only drive through those zones on a certain amount. And if they if they go through or spend too long in a different zone, they get fined. And it's all monitored and tracked. 
this is, I mean, this is proper dystopian stuff, but it's, it's framed around, like they always do, virtue, because it's saving the planet. <laughs> For me, saving the planet is about grow more things, grow more trees, grow more plants, grow more crops, support the farmers. The more things we grow, the more ability we have to absorb more and more CO2. And we'll be involved in the best aspect of the ecosystem that's ever been created, Mother Nature's um, carbon cycle. That That is common sense. But instead, we have a set of crass logic solutions all wrapped around control. And the heart of the matter with a lot of these solutions, including 15-minute cities, environmental response, COVID, you name it, is how do they connect? How can they monitor? And that is through digital ID. On every single thing that we've talked about here, the way that governments can monitor, surveil, control, and potentially restrict is through digital ID. QR codes are not freedom. They are the diametric opposite of that. In our final moments with you here, James, I I just want to recap what we have covered. So net zero means digital ID, voting, immigration policy, vaccines and healthcare and access to healthcare, uh, access to the government, finance, energy, travel, uh, e-commerce, the ability to buy and sell. All of this means digital ID, and it all amounts to a complete loss of freedom. And you had tweeted the other day, you said, tech has brought us together, but it's now being weaponized by governments to force, uh, excuse me, to tie us together through digital ID. And I added a note to that because I printed out your tweet and I said, um, not just to, to tie us together through digital ID, but to force us into submission. And we haven't really spoken here about uh, the role of big tech out of Silicon Valley, but you know, big tech is is all around the world. But these players, what we have seen in the U.S., these big tech players are so deeply in bed here in the U.S. with our deep state. I'm sure with the British deep state, Western deep state entities uh, across the the world, they are so deeply in bed that the corruption runs very deep. But the actual collusion between big tech. And these globalist forces, both here and abroad, are so tight. I mean, thank goodness for Elon Musk, who's not perfect, but thank goodness for him exposing all of this by buying the company and then putting out the Twitter files. We now know the extent of the collusion, or maybe we don't. Maybe it's even deeper than we think. But they, these uh, globalist forces cannot carry out this agenda without the help of big tech to establish the digital identities and carry out this kind of surveillance, correct? Yeah, I agree. I think it's all interconnected. I think as George Carlin once said, it's a big club and we're not in it. It's interconnected between governments, corporates, technocrats, legacy corporate media, and now big tech. All of these things exist, and big pharma, all all Mm -hmm. these things existed apart from one thing. Um, which has come in the last 20, 25 years, and that's the tech bit. Um, there was no way they could coordinate all of this and tie people in knots and suppress and control and get everyone to be subservient unless they had one thing, and that is the technology to do it, uh, which they now have. Um, we, could, we, could, <laughs> we, could, we could end this immediately by becoming technological Luddites and throw away our smartphones and go back to just old-fashioned telephones and just work off our laptops. 
but everyone's too enslaved by the technology. It's um, like Huxley said, people in, in a weird way enjoy their servitude. And that often is through technology. Uh, final question for you, because I, I'd like to leave on an optimistic note, James, if we can. Um, it all seems so completely overwhelming, and these entities are so global and incredibly powerful. Knowing now what we know about what we're facing, how can we, average citizens of the West, combat all of this? And are you confident that it can be done? Um. I'm confident on certain issues. Um, COVID, people complied. There was a propaganda unknown to anyone like this. This is what we had through the COVID area, which people complied. People were scared. Um, there was relentless propaganda, and people ended up complying to all kinds of weird rules and regulations. So health, I think people have complied. I think finance, it will be sold under financial security and convenience, so I'm concerned about that. But I do think net zero, I think net zero, people aren't buying into it. There's too many rules and restrictions that are interrupting people's day-to-day life, like 15-minute cities, and it's affecting businesses. And people, there's no fear attached to that. Um, So I think we need to find ways to relate to people and, I think, understand which which. Which campaigns can be won? And I actually think the net zero one can be won because unless they, they get all these components in under digital ID, all it needs is one area not not to work for them. And then it, it could all fall like a pack of cards. So I'm concerned about certain areas, but I think they'll struggle to get the control that they want in other areas, like, for instance, net zero response. This is the most important conversation of our lifetimes And you are such an important voice on this, James, again, particularly because you have always been a classical liberal. You're not coming at it from the point of view that I am and and others are from a conservative viewpoint. You bring such credibility to these arguments because you care about human freedom in the UK and, and across the West and really across the world. Because, you know, honestly, if the United States and the UK go down, the rest of the world goes down. We are the biggest of them all, and that's why they have set their sights on uh, destroying American freedom, British freedom, and taking us down this path. And if they succeed where you are and where I am right now, then it all just sort of falls into place. So it really falls to the rest of us to put our hands up and say no and get the proper leadership into place, but also to take it into our own hands uh, to defy these kinds of uh, tyrannical mandates and, and this path. So, James, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. James Melville, you can find him on Twitter. He's got a great Twitter feed, which, by the way, I think... Is Elon Musk following you? You have a couple of really huge followers now, right? Uh, I have people like Jeff Bezos or right. Djokovic. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, very Obama, cool. I think, I think Obama does as well. But, you know, there's various people who raise their head above the parapet and look at well, that's blathering about on social media. No, no, your Twitter feed is fantastic at James Melville, and that's very cool. And if Obama is in fact following you, maybe he will learn something. We can only hope. <laughs> hope springs eternal. James Mel- Melville, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Enjoyed it as always, Monica. Look forward to doing it again soon.
All right, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me as always and for checking out our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that. Have a good uh, rest of your week and I will see you right back here on Thursday with a very important and special show about the concept of happiness with an extraordinary guest. You're not going to want to miss this, okay? So I will see you right back here on Thursday. Thursday.